We are at another week of finding momentum, unstick your spiritual life. So if you haven't been with us, we've been in 2 Peter. And 2 Peter is all about us adding to our faith. So Peter comes in and says, hey, listen, it's important for you to have faith, but you need to add certain disciplines to your life. And when you do that, you'll actually find momentum spiritually. And when you find momentum It means that you're going to have a fruitful life, that you won't stumble, and that you'll enter into the eternal kingdom. And so each week we have been talking about different disciplines that Peter adds to faith. So we talked about goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and now this week we're talking about godliness. And so here's the big idea, and I just want you to think about this. What does godliness look like? I mean, think about that. Just, just take a couple of seconds. Like, what's the picture of godliness to you? Like, if you were to really kind of play it out, what, what does that look like? Is it, for instance, is it the, the person who goes away into a closet somewhere for weeks on out? who's on his knees all the time, and when he comes out of the closet, his jeans are ripped at his knees, Right? And he's been worshiping and praying and fasting and his hair's all over the place, but he doesn't care why, because he loves Jesus, right? Is, is it that monkish life? Is that what godliness looks like? And all of you are going, man, it's just not practical. Like, nah, that can't be it. But maybe in the back of your head, you're going, but if I was to be honest, that's probably what godliness looks like, right? I mean, I can't do it, but there it is. Or, or maybe for you, in your mind, You go, if I was really depressed myself, like, what does godliness look like? It looks like the person who knows God and is really successful. (laughs) Like, really good at everything they do. Whatever they touch, it turns to gold. You know, that Midas touch. And you just think, man, obviously the person, because they have so much success in their business, or maybe at their marriage, or, or whatever it is in their life, they do really good in school, and they just, they're at the top of the list. They're successful individuals. That, that obviously means they're godly, right? I mean, I mean, for sure. And so you think, man, if I'm godly, then everything that I do will touch and turn into gold. It'll just be a fantastic life. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you think, if you were to honest, be honest with yourself, you think godliness is the opposite of that. It means you pursue poverty. It means you, you absolutely have to move to another country. You have to be a missionary. And as a matter of fact, you're not just seeing suffering. You are pursuing suffering in your heart and mind. Like that's what godliness is, right? I mean, Jesus came to suffer and die. I need to do likewise. These are some competing ideas, right? I mean, I, I really wonder, I, I wish we could almost take a poll and say, what is godliness? What does it look like for you? And so we're going to be looking at that. And here's the thing. It's a difficult question to answer. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to answer all of it for you. What I am going to do is we're going to look in 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at what godliness looks like, at least a piece of it, in 2 Peter. But before we go there, I want you to think about some things. We all come in with presuppositions. We all come in with what this thing godliness looks like in our lives. And we have, we've been, we have our upbringing. We have what we've been taught. We received all this information. And it dramatically affects how we view godliness in our lives. So I'm going to give you an example. I think this one actually 
really speaks to a lot of the way that we think now. And it was all the way back to one of the guys anyways. One of the guys was a guy named Plato. Plato was this individual that taught uh, this idea of dualism. And I think it actually plays into our thinking in the church today. And you'll, you'll see that in a second. But Plato taught that there was two competing things. And so if you could pull up that, that slide, we are, we're talking about dualism and we're talking about material versus immaterial. So Plato taught that everything that was in the world that was material was less than. But everything that was immaterial, the mind, the soul, spirituality, so to speak, it was of great importance. As a matter of fact, it was so much more important than the material world that you need to pursue the spiritual or the immaterial. And that bled over into a man named Augustine, who was a theologian who we would say, many people would say anyways, had the greatest impact on the American church today in the way that we think, in the way that we act. And so Augustine took this this idea of dualism and he just used different words. He called it sacred versus secular. Okay, so everything that is sacred is of great importance. Everything that is sacred is the thing that you pursue in your life. But everything that is secular, eh, it doesn't really matter. You don't pursue it. As a matter of fact, if you can avoid it and and pursue the, the sacred, then you should go about that way. So let me give you some examples. And I've talked about it a little bit, but I just want to flesh it out for you. So the sacred is prayer, fasting, worship reading your Bible. All these things are of great importance. And these are the things that you should pursue. So let me tell you how this has bled into the church and even into everyday life, our vocation. Well, somebody who's godly, obviously what they're going to do is they're going to become a pastor, a missionary, a deacon, an elder. They are going to be a a part of a nonprofit. And so they're going to help the marginalized. Like those are the sacred things. And all these secular things, man, they're not as important. As a matter of fact, if we can avoid them, that would be great too. So a car mechanic, an architect, somebody who builds, right? A doctor, a lawyer, the nuances of all the legalities. These are, these are secular things. They're not as important. And so if I really want to be godly, if I really want to pursue God, I don't want to have an, a job that's 40 hours plugging in numbers behind a computer. That's just not godliness, Right? And so what we do is, is we pursue the sacred. That's a problem. That's a, that's a problem. In the way that we think, in the way that we view Scripture, in the way that we see what God has done, God created everything and it was good. He created a place. And what did Adam and Eve, they were called to have dominion over the earth, which means they gardened, which means they worked the ground. God didn't say, hey, this is a secular thing, don't do that. No, no, he says this is of great value. But, but in the church today, in our thinking today, we think, oh, well, if I'm going to be godly, I can't, man, I can't reno my kitchen. Like, I, I, can't, I can't buy something. As a matter of fact, I need to get rid of that life. I need to get rid of stuff. I need to pursue holiness and godliness, which means I need to pursue all the sacred things in my life. This has bled over into the way that we read Scripture, too. Watch this. I'm going to call it things versus actions. I don't have these Scriptures on, on, but you can look at them later. You can look them up. 1 John talks about do not love the world or the things in the world. 
And so we, oftentimes what we do is, is we import our thinking into scripture. And so we go, okay, well, John says we're not supposed to love the world or the things in the world. So we're supposed to pursue sacred things, right? It's not at all what John's saying. John's not saying, hey, everything that is material, every stuff, all of the earth, like literally the world, we're supposed to get rid of that. No, no, no. We're supposed to pursue sacred things. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you look right after, he says, don't pursue three sins in your life. Don't pursue the lust of the flesh, right? Don't pursue the pride of life. And he gives one other. And, and so he, he's not talking about the literal creation. He's not talking about material. But in our Platonic thought in the church today, we automatically import that and go, well, we aren't supposed to pursue those things. We need to get rid of this world, the things of this world. And so we're going to pursue Jesus. We're going to pray fast and do all those things. Forget about my job. Going to India. Right? Or Colossians chapter 3. Again, it's not on the screen, but you can look it up later. Seek the things above. Hey, if you love Jesus, seek the things above. So obviously, leave this earth, leave this stuff, leave everything, my job, all that. This, it, it doesn't matter. It's secondary. It's of no importance in my life. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pursue the things above. But then what does he say? He says the things that are below, the earthly things, he says, are the sinful nature of our flesh. Not material but things that reside in our hearts, things that go on in our minds, and all the stuff that we do based off the sinfulness in our hearts. Don't seek those things. Seek things above. Seek godliness. Pursue Jesus. He goes on to say, put on Christ. So what does it look like to be godly? What does godliness look like if we've got this backdrop in the church and in our minds and in our hearts and we feel like we need to get rid of these things and pursue these things, but they're not right? What does godliness look like? There's this tension here. I mean, what, what do we look for? What do we want to be like? Do we want to be like a monk or a consumer or a poverty-like striver? What, what, what does it look like? And then I think of Jesus. Jesus lived on earth. He was a carpenter. Okay. He sought out relationships with people. He actually, just think about this whole material, immaterial idea and the sacred and the secular. He took water and turned it into wine. He enjoyed the creation. He enjoyed relationships with other people. He pursued the marginalized. He loved the destitute. And he cared for the self-righteous Pharisee too. He lived out the perfect balance of what godliness looks like. And he came with a mission. He didn't come just to enjoy life. No, no. He came with a mission. His mission was to come, live a perfect life, die on a cross, rise on the third day. We've got this example of Jesus, and that's the person that we want to be. We want to be like Christ. And so based on 2 Peter, we're going to look at what godliness looks like. And Peter contrasts false teachers and people who walk in godliness. And I'm going to show you three ways that we're supposed to live out and look like godliness in our lives. So let's go. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to summarize some of this for the first point, but the first thing that I want you to see is godliness lives like God is involved. 
godliness lives like God is involved. So we had these false teachers. You can look at it, chapter 3, the first 10 verses. I'm not going to read all of them, okay? First 10 verses, these false teachers say and claim that Jesus isn't going to return. That he, not only that, not only is Jesus not coming back to judge the living and the dead, but he's not involved at all. And so we've got this picture of people who are living and breathing false teaching and they act like God isn't involved in their lives and that Jesus isn't returning at all. And that dramatically affects the way that they live, the way that they view God, the way that they view their lives. And so what do they do? They say, well, if Jesus isn't coming back and God isn't involved in my life, then guess what? I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. I can think however I want because God's not coming back. He's not involved. Yeah, I believe he saved me. I believe he worked in my life. But now it's up to me. Whatever I do on this earth is up to me. That's what they taught. That's what they lived like. They, they, they lived this idea. Y'all have heard of this before. Deism. They lived like God set everything in motion at creation Boom, there's a woman, there's a man, there's the earth, there's all the stuff in the earth, there's the trees, the flowers, the animals, everything. Adam names them. It's this beautiful place. Y'all get going. I'll see y'all later. I'll be back in a million years. Right? And so now it's up to us to figure it out. What do we live like? What do we want to look like? And we're just on our own. Jesus isn't really involved. God isn't really involved in our lives. No, no, no. That's not what the scriptures teach. As a matter of fact, the scriptures teach that he is incredibly involved in our lives. So I, want you, I just want you to think about this. Do you ever doubt God's involvement in your life right now? Are you doubting God's involvement in your story, in your situation, in your marriage, at your job, as a student? Are you questioning that? I mean, think about it. If God was truly involved, my circumstances would be different. If God was truly involved, would we be seeing the things that we're seeing happening now today? Right? We, we ask those questions. Does this make you, I want to ask you, as you think about that, and you do. I know you do, because I do, and I'm a human just like you. I question if God's really involved in the details. I do. Even though I know it, even though I read it in the scripture, even though it says that he has counted every hair on our head, even though that it says that he loves us, that he's present. It says in Psalm 139, right, that, he, that there is nowhere that we can go that he's not there. There's no darkness. There's no place. There's no situation that God isn't present and there where his spirit isn't residing. We know this, but yet what do we do? We go, God, where are you at, man? What are you doing? Why does my life look like it does? Why does my kid's life look like it does? Where are you, God? Right? We ask those questions, but I want you to ask, I want to ask you this. As you ask that question, do you go, I just want to escape? I just want to get away? Like, if I truly believe God isn't involved in this moment, I'm going to go and find somewhere where I can find pleasure? where I can find some peace and some hope. And it may be completely outside what God has intended for my life, but man, I don't know where else to go. If I don't binge tonight, I'm gonna be so sad tomorrow. I'm not gonna wanna go to work. I mean, what, what does that look like for you? We call that escapism, right? 
Where we, we get to this place where we go, man, I just feel and I sense and I know in my heart, God isn't involved in my life. And so I'm going to pursue all of this other stuff that what? It ends up hurting us and shaming us and guilting us and we can't get away from it. That's exactly what ungodliness looks like. Peter is saying, hey, listen, don't be like the false teachers. He's present. He's here. He loves you. Even though you can't feel it, even though you can't sense it, I want you to know he's here. God is transcendent and imminent. Those are two big words. Transcendent, he's other than, he's bigger. He's a deity. He's, he's outside the confines of the world. He's outside time. But, but, and so we think, well, God's just, he put everything in motion and now he's uninvolved. No, no, no. God's not just transcendent. He's imminent. He's close. He's near the brokenhearted. When you cry out to him, he hears you. He knows all of your hurts and your pains, and he meets you in those moments. It says that he is an ever-present help in our time of need. He's both transcendent and imminent. And you know why that's so good? Because if we don't believe in a God that's bigger than us in time and our situation, the fact that he's close doesn't really matter because he has no power. But he's both powerful good. He's both far and he's near. That's our God. And the false teachers are teaching this other kind of language. And so these things affect how we live. Think about it. It changes what we watch when Jesus is near. It changes what we read. It changes what we think that that we can go, okay, I know that my situation tells me otherwise, but no, 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 God is near. So I'm not going to have those thoughts. I'm not going to continue to lay in my bed. I'm going to get up. Why? Because he's here. Because he loves me. Because he he has a desire to change me. It changes what we purchase. It changes the decisions that we make in our lives. He's both far and near. Godliness looks like God is involved in your life now, in your decisions tomorrow, in all of your life. I want to give you an example of this of seeing God's involvement during suffering. This is from a woman at our campus. I asked her. She sent it to me this week. It was an email, and I want to read it to you. It's from a woman named Kay. This is what it says. It was very difficult to hear again the diagnosis cancer. I had heard it 19 years ago, and I knew what lay ahead of me, the side effects of the treatment, the dependence on others, Doctor's appointments, needles, invasive tests, and the fear of the unknown. The shock this time was stage four lung cancer, metastasized in the brain and bones. She put, what? What? The thoughts were inevitable. How are we going to pay our share of health insurance? How are we going to pay our bills since my husband, Paulo, was still recovering from a car accident in November 2019? So many other doubts and uncertainties. The only certainty and peace I had was that if my time here is over, I would go into the Father's arms, receive a new name, an incorruptible body, because Jesus died for me to heal me from the worst of cancers, sin. Today, I can see that God was already working on my care, fears, and uncertainties long before I was diagnosed. When I was hospitalized, I informed my Bible study group at Grace Oviedo to pray for me. The answer wasn't just, we're praying for you. 
They immediately offered anything they could do to help. Meals for my family if I needed anything at the hospital. They had people from our campus show up at my house to take care of our lawn in this great need of time for us. Clint, Kyle, and some members of the leadership went to pray for me at the hospital on my worst day of my stay. It was a moment very scary for me. Your prayers gave me the comfort and strength I needed that day. So many of you were praying for her. My family and I felt an immediate spiritual, emotional, and financial support from our Grace family. We received visits, flowers, cards, presents, gift cards, meals, rides to go for radiation treatment, help to pay rent, electricity bills, medical expenses, groceries, even masks to go on to the doctor's office. I share with my Bible study my need, and in 15 minutes I had masks at my door. The constant prayer, spiritual, emotional, financial support made this journey lighter. I could see God's love for me so clearly through God's community. I confess, I thought this was so powerful. I confess that I often thought this will only be in the beginning. Then everyone goes on with their lives and I will continue without so much support. Don't we feel that way with God? Like, God, you're going to give me this bone now, but what about later? Then everyone goes on. After 10 months, I'm still in treatment and still receiving all the support we need from the church. The needs have changed, but the Grace family is still with me on this healing journey. Just yesterday, I received two encouraging cards, flowers, and a gift card from Publix from some dear friends of Grace Oviedo. Every week, I receive messages from friend from Grace Oviedo to check on me and encourage me. The process of healing is working little by little. I'm already good enough to work from home, still with some challenges, but working. What it is, a big blessing. Thank you, Grace Church, and a special thank you to Vito Campus for showing me so much love. Watch this. I hope in some time in the future, my testimony will be that I'm 100% cancer-free. You know what the beauty is? Whether now or later, she's going to be 100% cancer-free. She is 100% cancer-free. She is living like God is involved in her life, and that is is godliness, even in suffering, even in suffering. Second thing I want you to see in this text in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 is this. Godliness lives in anticipation of Christ's return. Let's look at the text. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's speaking of heaven and earth. We're going to jump into that. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So, he, so Peter says, hey, listen, all this is going to go away. We're going to talk about what that means, but all this is going to go away. Jesus is going to return. He's going to judge the living and the dead. And when he says that all of it's going to dissolve, Here's my opinion as I read scripture, and I'm not super dogmatic about it, but I see it throughout consistently. When it says we're going to have a new heavens and a new earth, what that means is, is that the earth is going to be purged. Fire, I don't know how it works, I don't know what that means, but literally the fallenness, the brokenness, the sinfulness of this world and of our lives is going to be purged away. And there's going to be a new heaven. So I'm going, to, I'm going to say it in a different way. A restored heaven and a restored earth. That looks like creation before the fall, but even better. So 
I'm going to say it again. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, all the fallenness, all the brokenness, all the sinfulness, what sort, what kind of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? When you hear that the fallenness of the earth is going to burn up, Jesus is coming to bring judgment, how does that impact your life now? I'm going to say it a different way. How does it change your five-year plan? Think about that. How does it change your future? How does it change the way you think about, I don't know, your job, your 401k, your life, the way you raise your kids? Think about it in this light too. All of the sinfulness is going to be purged from the earth. All of the power plays, all of the trying to get ahead, all the making a name for yourself, building a kingdom for yourself is going to burn up. How does that change your next five years? How does that change what you think about, what you're pursuing? What does godliness look like in my life? It lives in anticipation that Jesus is coming back and all this stuff that we are pursuing that's not good, that's not godly is gonna burn up. It's gonna go away. All the striving, all the guilt, all of it's going to be gone. If all your impure motives went away, what would you change right now? What would you change in your life? But watch this. Holiness and godliness is linked to the next phrase. So he says, hey, holiness, be set apart. Godliness, be like God. But then watch what it's linked to. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which, verse 12, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to be honest with you because I'm going to answer it myself. Are you waiting for the return of the Lord? I'm not. I'm not. I don't think about it. It doesn't really impact my day-to-day life. You know why? Because I'm all about right now. I think about what's my next step, what's my next day, how do we do this, and I'm all here in the now. I may think about future of a job or my family or whatever, but I I don't think about the fact, I'm just being honest with you. I don't think about the fact that Jesus is going to return, and I don't know when and how that should impact my life, and maybe you're like me. And if that is you, I have questions for me, and I have questions for you as well. John the Baptist, he is a forerunner or foreshadowing of what this looks like. John the Baptist, he was to proclaim of the coming of Jesus. You know what he did? He went into a desert, a wilderness, put on camel's hair, got a leather belt, ate locusts, and cried out and told people that Jesus was coming. A little different, right? A little crazy. Like if we saw him today, we'd probably be like, dude, you, you, you done lost it. I don't know what's wrong with you, right? But what was he doing? They actually came to him. They came to John the Baptist and said, hey, John, are you the guy? Are you Jesus? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? And he goes, no, 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 no. Listen, the guy who's coming, who actually John the Baptist knew because he grew up with him. Key point. John the Baptist knew what he looked like already because he knew him because he had a relationship with him. But he said, hey, John the Baptist said, hey, no, 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 it's not me. But the guy who's going to come that you're going to see in a little bit, I'm not even fit to tie the thongs of the sandals on his feet. He saw Jesus in a completely different light than so many other people. He shaped 
his life around it. And then it says, so he's waiting for, anticipating the coming of Jesus. So godliness looks like we are anticipating Christ's return. But not only that, it says hastening. It's a strong word. That's a word of speed. It's the idea that what we do now matters to when Jesus returns. Did y'all catch that? That they are waiting for and hastening. What we do is our part of God's returning soon. As a matter of fact, in the the first letter of Peter, Peter's all about living holy lives so that what others, Gentiles, everyone around them would come to know Jesus. Wives, they say, submit to your husbands in such a way that they would come to Christ. I mean, the whole letter is talking about living holy lives so that others would be in the mission and on the mission of Jesus. He says it over and over. Your life is a mission. He says you're in exile. You're waiting for Jesus to return. You're part of the hastening of Jesus. This is why what godliness looks like is so tricky. That's why there's this tension. We're not of the world, but we're in the world. So I want to read something to you. This is a book called You and Me Forever by Francis Chan. Marriage in Light of Eternity. I just want you to hear this. As we talk about being on mission and hastening and having this mission-minded, that this is part of godliness in our lives. This is what he says. He has given us a clear mission to make disciples. (laughs) When I read this, you're going to be like, oh my gosh. Yet Christian couples can most typically be found holding hands, skipping through life, ignoring the battle that rages around them. We have made happy families our mission That's not the mission that Jesus gave us. But we try to justify the idolatry, can't say that word, justify this, I'm just going to skip it, of marriage, you get it, making marriage an idol, I'll just say that, because it's what we want. Thanks for laughing. As we have been saying marriage is important, watch this, it's not most important. When we focus on what is most important, our marriages will thrive because they will be functioning according to their design. But if we focus too intently on our families, we'll actually fail at life and therefore at marriage. The Bible teaches that we are at war. He gives a scripture. I'm going to skip it. It's the real war with a very real enemy. God has given us a mission so we cannot allow ourselves to get entangled in civilian pursuits. Watch this. Watch the tension that I just gave at the beginning of the message and now. I want you to picture for a second, he says, picture a nice house with a white picket fence and your happy family lounging inside. Now imagine a full-scale war unfolding just a few blocks away. Just picture that. You got this awesome cottage. Everything's great. You're sipping mimosas, right? Loving life. But there's a war unfolding just a few blocks. Your friends and neighbors are fighting for their lives while you are remodeling your kitchen and hanging your new big screen TV. You have contractors installing better windows so you can tune out all the noise, right? It's a pretty pathetic picture, but it's an appropriate comparison for the lives that so many Christian couples have chosen. They are ignoring Jesus' mission in hopes of enjoying life. Don't fall for it. Real life is found in the battle. Right now, we have many brothers and sisters being tortured overseas because of their faith. He goes on, but I want you to hear this. As we mentioned earlier, part of the mission is having a healthy marriage. Our mission does not call us to neglect our marriages. That's the correction there. But a marriage cannot be healthy unless we are seeking his kingdom and righteousness first. Love this line. Being in war together is what keeps us from being at war with each other. 
For those who have the spirit of them, there is a longing to be in the battle. We want to be used. We want to be a part of his mission. Hastening. Are you on mission for Jesus? Are you thinking about the fact that he's coming back? And I I don't think if you sat down with Francis Chan, he would say, if you remodel your kitchen, you're in sin. I think what he's saying is, are you on mission? Is your marriage, are y'all talking about how you can reach people for Jesus? Are you just trying to make it through life and have a happy life? That's, That's the challenge. That's the rub. That's the tension. Whether it's our marriages, our work ethic, our discipline, our hobbies, our character should point to God. It should hasten the coming of Jesus. We should live differently. Why? Because we're godly. Because we are God-like. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I just want to ask you this question. Do you think about the new heavens and the new earth? I don't. I don't. Randy Alcorn even says in his book, he said that him and his wife have a bucket list in heaven. What? I don't know if that blows your mind. I was just sitting there reading it like, huh? He talks about how God is outside of time, and so he's going to be able to go to moments in his life and see how God worked. He has bucketlets of things that he wants to see in other people's lives, people that he wants to meet, times and questions that he wants to ask Jesus. He has a bucket list for heaven. We give little attention to the afterlife, and godliness considers the life to come. We don't just stay here alone. We look to the life that comes. Last one, godliness lives with a clean conscience. This one's short. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent, make every effort to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So he uses three terms. Godliness looks like this. It's a person who is without spot, blemish, or holiness. We know that we can't have that fully and finally except in Jesus. But there's a sense in which we live in this earth saying, is there a spot? Is there a blemish? Is there, is there anything in my life that falls short? And we, we confess that. And we, I have a story, but I'm going to skip it. I'm over on time. It's the opposite of the false teachers who are full of blots and blemishes, though. It's the opposite. Do you have a spot that you need to deal with in your life? And the last one, are you at peace? Are you at peace with God? Because godliness says that you would. Are you at peace with your life? Are you where God wants you to be? Is there someone you need to forgive or reconcile with or apologize to? So what godliness looks like. And so again, I just want to point you to Jesus Listen, I gave y'all so much. You're going to go home and be like, that is a lot to work through and wrestle with and think about in my life. Pursue Jesus. He's the ultimate example. He's our hope. He's our peace. And we expect his return. We recognize that he's with us. And we want to have clear and clean consciences before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I just pray, God, that you would penetrate into our lives. God, now that we would be God-like and that we would feel the tension of we live on earth and the things of the earth aren't wrong, but at the same time, God, that we are pursuing a life after and that we are called to be on mission now. And so help us to do that. Help us to see that and to live that. Lord, we, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.